As we transition into part two of our series called Found, let me start by asking this question. How many of you would admit in church that you are directionally challenged? Hold your hand high. Nothing wrong with that. We have GPSs today, so who, who would ever really know you're directionally challenged unless you don't know how to use a GPS? That could be a problem. So um, I'm, I'm okay with directions. I feel like I'm pretty decent with directions, but there are moments that I get turned around and get lost. A few years ago, I went down to a pastor's conference in Orlando, met a friend of mine down there, and after that conference, we went to lunch. And since we drove separate, I followed him, and he led the way to where we were going to eat, and he went left and right and left and left and right and right and left and left and right and right. Finally, we got there, and we had lunch. After lunch, he left, and I sat in the parking lot going, I have no idea where I am. I, I don't know how to get home. And so, guys, did I stop and ask for directions? Why would anybody do that? That just like, takes the fun out of life. So I would rather drive around for an hour and try to find my way than stop and, and ask help, and maybe it takes two minutes. I would rather spend the hour. So I did, and drove around, couldn't find my way, and I got to that just sad moment, guys, where, you know, it's the moments like of humiliation, the walk of shame. It's like, I'm lost. <laughs> I cannot find my way home. So I had to, to pause and admit, I'm lost. And that's the bottom line for our message today, is that in order to come home, in order to be found, we first have to admit that we're lost. So we're going to see that in today's Bible story. So this series is birthed out of some stories that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus told these stories because there were some people that didn't understand what God was really like, and he was trying to help them understand that. And he was trying to help them understand what is super important to God. So not only for Jesus' audience then, but for us today, as we listen to these stories, um, if you're a Christ follower, this series has big implications for us because what's important to God should be important to us. And what God cares about, we should care about as well. If you aren't a Christ follower, I think this series can really help to clear up some of those many misconceptions that there are out there about God. And if you think about God and those misconceptions, God is the most misunderstood being in the universe. And how Christ followers live is kind of part of what contributes to that in that there are moments we don't actually live like, like Jesus. We don't live the way that God wants us to live. And so people have weird perceptions about God based upon that. And so Jesus tells these stories to try to help us understand what God is really like. So in Luke chapter 15, Jesus has some religious leaders around him and they're pretty upset with him. And the reason they're upset is because he is spending so much time with tax collectors and notorious sinners. And in another passage, these religious leaders even ask Jesus' disciples, why does your leader spend so much time with that scum? It's basically what they say. He even eats with them. And in that culture, eating with someone was a sign of approval, of, a, of acceptance, and friendship. So it was a really big deal. For us, not that big of a deal. But in Jesus' day, a religious leader would never eat with anybody who was not serious about their faith, who was in the category of a notorious sinner or a tax collector. So because these religious leaders are upset with Jesus, Jesus tells them three stories. 
tells them the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin. We looked at those two stories last week. And then today he's going to tell them the story of the lost son. And it's also known as the prodigal son story. And over the next few weeks, we are going to look at this story from three different perspectives. We're going to look at it today from the son's perspective. Next week, we're going to look at it from the father's perspective. And then after that, we're going to look at this from the older brother's perspective. And we haven't really gotten acquainted with the older brother yet, but in uh, two weeks, we will get well acquainted with him. So we're going to start in Luke 15, chapter, um, chapter 15, verse 11. Verse 11 says this, to illustrate the point further, so that's after telling these first two stories, the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and it says Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, in contrast to the first two stories that Jesus told, um, this is a different story. In the first two stories, Jesus said to this, his audience, these religious leaders, you know, what would a, a person do if they lost a sheep? What would they do if they lost a, a coin? Wouldn't they go out searching for that lost sheep, that lost coin? And Jesus' audience would have said, yes, that's what anybody would do in that scenario. But Jesus crafts this story in a unique way, this third story. He crafts it with a spoiled brat of a son saying to his dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. Why don't you just go ahead and give me your stuff now? So that would uh, be very appalling back then, but it's kind of appalling for us as well. But let me help you understand why it was such a big deal back then when Jesus crafted this story this way. Uh, Jesus' culture was a very male-dominated society, and parental respect was such a big deal that if a parent didn't get that respect, what they could do is those parents could take their child to the city leaders and proclaim this child as a rebellious kid. And if the city leaders confirmed that rebellion, they could then take that child outside the city gates and stone that child to death. Don't get any ideas today. That was back then. You cannot kill your kid, okay? It's not all right. But how would you feel um, in a moment like that? How would you feel if one of your kids came up to you and said, I'm tired of, of waiting for you to die. Just give me what is due me now. What would you think? What would you want to do? What would you want to say? I would want to say something like this. Well, it sucks to be you because I just wrote you out of the inheritance. Good luck with life. That's what I would want to say. And the religious leaders listening to this story would have expected something like that. They would have expected that this father would kick this kid out of, out of his home, out of the community, that he would deal with him harshly and quickly. I mean, this was a respect issue. This was a reputation issue for him. I mean, how would he be viewed in the community if he didn't deal harshly with his son? But in this story, father doesn't respond that way. The kid's request was just appalling, but the father's response was shocking. The father just simply divided his wealth between his sons. 
Now, the father's wealth would have been primarily wrapped up in real estate and livestock. So in order for him to grant his son's request, he would have had to sell some of his wealth, sell some of his belongings. And the Greek word for wealth in this verse can be translated life. So this father is not only dividing his wealth for his sons, he's dividing his life for his sons. Basically, he's allowing his, his life to be torn apart, to be torn in two for his kids. And I would bet that some of you know what that's like as a parent. You know what it's like to have your heart torn in two by one of your kids. You know what it's like to give everything you have for a kid who doesn't care about anything. And that's where this father is. But the son, he doesn't care about that. Doesn't care about the father's spot. Doesn't care about the father's emotions. And in verse 13, the party for him begins. Verse 13 says, a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and he moved to the big city. And there, what did he do? He wasted all of his money in what? Now, this is shocking to us that anybody 18 to 20 in their early 20s would get like a lot of money and go blow it. Um, on wild living anywhere. Like, we don't, like, really get that. We, we think people are going to get that, make proper investments for retirement and all that stuff. But this kid, he shows up and blows it all. But before he blows it, he's super excited. He's super happy. And, like, he's just got a boatload of money. And he's going to go to the big city. He's going to meet new friends. And what are they going to think about him when he rolls into town on his new donkey with the, you know, the top down, his shades on? I mean, he's going to be the big man in the big city. And he was. He was until the inevitable verse 14 comes along. Verse 14 says, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. Now this arrogant son has no money. He has no friends. He has nothing. Verse 15 tells us he doesn't even have his dignity. Verse 15 says he persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him but no one gave him anything. And the word persuaded in verse uh, 15 is another way to say begged. So imagine being in a spot where you are so low. You are begging to get a job where you can feed pigs and probably what you eat is what the pigs have left over. That's a pretty low spot. Um, for us, we would think, okay, that's pretty nasty. I hope I never get there. But for a Jew and how Jesus told this story, this was the lowest of the low. Because God said in Leviticus 11, you're not to have anything to do with pigs. You're not to touch them. You're not to eat them. They are ceremonially unclean. So when Jesus crafted this story the way that he did, for a Jew, that was the worst of the worst, the bottom of the barrel. Now, don't worry if you're a bacon fan. God changed that in the New Testament. So bacon on. Let's have bacon this morning after the service. So remember, this is a story that Jesus is telling. He knows his audience. 
He knows what they're going to want to do with his son after they hear that he's working with pigs. There's no chance he's coming back. There's no chance of forgiveness. He's gotten himself to this spot. He has no one to blame but himself. So we're writing him off altogether. Some of us know what that's like, right? Some of us know what it's like to make really stupid decisions and get ourselves in a spot. We have no one else to blame. No one to blame but ourselves. We got ourselves there. We did that. We made that choice. And there we sit, kind of symbolically feeding pigs. But here's a really cool thing. For us or people that we love when, when they're in that moment, when we're in that moment where, where we're feeding pigs, we don't have to stay there. We actually can get out. We can make a different choice. And verse 17 tells us how to do that. Verse 17 says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son, so please take me on as a hired servant. Now, this is one of those supernatural moments. This is one of those moments where the son admits, I'm lost. I'm lost. Like, I I don't even know how to be found. I don't know how to even go home. This is one of those moments in life that's extremely rare. It's extremely rare back then. It was extremely rare for us today. Um, It's that moment when we say, like, I'm lost. I realize it. I know it. I admit it to myself. I admit it to God. I admit it to other people. I admit it to people that I've hurt. And I have to take responsibility for the things that have gotten me here. And I will do the hard work of rebuilding what I've damaged. I'm gonna spend my time and energy doing that. And maybe there's someone here today that's at that verse 17 moment. Maybe you're at that moment in your life where you know you've blown it. You've blown it with God, you've blown it with other people. Like you know it. And maybe symbolically, you're kind of raising your hand going, that's me, that's me, I've I've gotta deal with this. But the big question is, will you? Will you come to your senses and come to God? Or will you keep feeding pigs? 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says this. It says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. I got to tell you, there's a handful of verses that every Christ follower should have memorized. Uh, John 3, 16 is one. Romans 8, 1 is one. Uh, Romans 3, 23. Romans 6, 23. Romans 5, 8. And 1 John 1, 8 and 9 would be a verse that, that you should have memorized. And it says, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive. Forgive. Cleanse us. 
Give us another chance. Give us a do-over. Give us a fresh start. And so one of the things that God is looking for in our lives is this thing we talked about last week called repentance. And again, repentance is that, that idea, not that idea, that action where we turn from and we turn to. We say, like, I admit I've been wrong. That's wrong. I'm turning from that. I'm turning to God. I'm turning from my ways to God's ways. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to live that way anymore. And repentance is bigger than this whole issue of saying, I'm sorry. We live in a culture that uses sorry too flippantly. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That hurt your feelings? I'm sorry. We throw it out. But you can be sorry about something and not change. You can be so sorry about a stupid bonehead decision that you made. And guess what decision you make tomorrow? The same stupid bonehead decision. I have done that many times in my own life. So it's, it's bigger than just being sorry. It's about this issue of repentance. Repentance means I am so sorry I will show it in how I live. I will prove it in my life you will see a significant change. So if you're at that spot where you're saying like, I know I'm at that come to my senses, verse 17 moment, will you go beyond just coming to your senses and saying, okay, like I admit that I've been wrong. Will you repent? Will you turn from? And will you turn to? Will you turn from that thing? And will you turn to God for help? The really cool thing about those coming to our senses moments, those moments when we're coming home, it leads to verse 20. Verse 20 says, so he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. So guess what that means? The father was watching. The father was constantly looking for his son to turn and come home and one day he did. When he saw him filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. I love this part of the story. Uh, this is, I think, a part of the story that we all love. It's that moment when the son is like humbly doing the walk of shame, almost crawling his way back to his dad. His dad sees him and runs to him. When was the last time you thought about God running to you in those moments where you were crawling back to him. Jesus says that's the God we serve. So the father runs to his son. He embraces him. He kisses him. He puts a ring on his finger, a family ring. He puts a, a robe on him, puts sandals on his feet, and he throws this amazing party that they, they've probably never had a party like that in their lives before. And the son was just hoping for a little bit of mercy, but he got way more than that. Same thing happens when, when we come to God, when we admit that we've been wrong, when we take responsibility for that wrong. We admit that to God. We admit that to other people. We admit that to people that we have harmed. We repent. We turn from that. We get way more than just a little bit of mercy. We get this thing called amazing grace. We get forgiveness. We get a clean slate. 
We get a do-over. We get a fresh start. We get welcomed home, either for the first time, or we get welcomed home again by a God who desperately loves us. There might be a few of you today who are at a spot where you need to come home, either for the first time or for another time. And if you're a Christ follower who needs to come home again, maybe what that sounds like is a conversation that you have with God where you say, God, like, I'm a bonehead. Like, I, I, I've been so wrong. I've tried to live my life without you, and I've proven that I can't. I've drifted from you. God, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your mercy. Will you forgive me? Will you welcome me back into your family? If you're a Christ follower, that's what it could look like this morning as you start a conversation with God. And if you aren't a Christ follower, coming to God for the first time might sound something like this. It might sound like you saying, God, like, I didn't even realize I needed you, but I'm realizing it today. You're a loving heavenly father who went to great lengths to prove that love. I'm coming to you today. Will you forgive me of the things that I've done wrong in my life? And will you come into my heart and be my loving heavenly father? That's what that conversation could sound like for you. In just a minute, our worship team's gonna come back out and they're gonna close us in a song called Oh, Come to the Altar. It's a great song uh, about us coming back to God or coming to God for the first time. And um, we've never, we don't really do this very often. We have done this before, but we don't do this very often, what we're about to do. And if you're new with us, this might feel a little bit weird, but that's all right. I'm a little bit weird at times. So I grew up around church cultures where coming to the altar meant coming to the front of the church on a Sunday morning. Um, it meant coming to the edge of the, the stage and having a conversation with God. And so if somebody needed to talk to God about something uh, at appropriate times in the service, they would get up and they would walk to the front. They would come to the front row. They would come to the stage and they would, they would kneel down and pray and talk to God. And so I just felt really strongly uh, compelled to, to lead us in this direction today, that if that would be appropriate for you, whether you're coming back to God or you're coming to God for the first time in your life, I would invite you in just a minute to come to the, the front of the stage Come up here, and, and it's just a crazy thought. A middle school cafeteria stage could be the place you meet God. Like, isn't that crazy? But it could be that place. Like, this could become like this kind of supernatural moment, supernatural space for you. Now, do you need to do that? No, you don't need to do that. Where you sit could be the altar for you. But there are moments where we need to do something physical to represent the decision that we're making that's spiritual. And we need to like get up and go and do something. And if you're thinking like, why would I go down there? Everybody's going to look at me and wonder, why are they going down there? Who cares? This son, when he was coming home, he didn't care what anybody else thought about him. The only thing that was important to him in that moment was coming to his father. That was it. And if you're afraid that you'll be all alone up here, you won't. I'm going to be right down here in the front. 
So if you want to come stand beside me, come stand beside me. If you want to come pray with me, I would love to pray with you. We can do that together down here. Next week, we're going to look at this story again from the Father's perspective. And again, I hope that you'll come back for this. Again, I, I can't say it enough. If there's any message in this series that you don't miss, I hope it's next week. And I hope you'll bring other people with you that don't have quite the right perception about God because we're going to look deeper at what this father does and what it means for our heavenly father. So I hope you'll come back next week. But if you would, please stand with me. We're going to pray. So God, I'm so grateful for scripture so grateful that, that we have your thoughts captured in print. We can read your words, Jesus. We can read your thoughts, Heavenly Father. We can learn what you are really like. Lord, so often we just have wrong perceptions of you. So often we don't see you as the Father running to us when we have done wrong, when we're trying to crawl our way back to you. That's what you're like. And Lord, this morning, there may be some people here who are, who are coming to you for the very first time in their lives ever. And today's the day where they realize, like, I need a heavenly father. And Lord, whether they get out of their seat and come down or whether they come to the edge of the stage or sit in the front row, Lord, as they talk to you, I pray that there would be just this divine conversation, this divine encounter where they fling open the doors of their heart and they invite you to come into their lives. Be their Lord and Savior. Transform them today for all of eternity. Lord, I pray for others who maybe need to come home after a time away. Uh, maybe they've drifted from you. Maybe they've just, for whatever reason, they've been off doing their own thing and today they realize, I've got to come home. Lord, I pray that they would go beyond just coming to their senses, but they would repent. They would confess that to you. And they would come home, start a conversation with you that can radically transform how they live every day. So God, thanks for these opportunities that we have to wrestle with this stuff and to respond to it. I pray that you would speak powerfully to us and we would respond in significant, life-changing ways. In Jesus' powerful name we pray this. Amen.